0: Hi everyone, how are you doing? My name's Gareth Duffin and welcome to Know Your Shift. A podcast where we explore the challenges, opportunities, and impact of change in all of our lives. Change can be unsettling and often difficult to navigate, but it's also a part of growth and progress. On this show, we'll be talking to experts, business leaders, and everyday people about their experiences with change and how they've overcome obstacles to embrace it. Whether you're looking for inspiration, practical tips, or just a fresh perspective on change, we get actionable advice. So let's dive into the world of change, embrace the unknown and help you to change your direction. My guest today on Know Your Shift is Fatih Mohammed fatty is head of residential operations for aparto now everyone will know that i spent a long time working in student accommodation have a real passion for the sector i wanted to get fatty on to know your shift as someone who likes to think a little bit differently in the industry we'll talk about change in general as we do on on know your shift and also talk about what he sees changing in the industry and, and what's coming up and how he is involved in that change and um, will lead parto through it. Fatty has a geology degree from the Imperial College London and over a decade of experience in the student accommodation sector, including management positions within IQ, Greystar and Heinz. Hi, Fatty. Thanks for joining us on the Know Your Shift. It's uh, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for welcoming me, Gareth. Okay so we'll dive straight in. As you know we talk about change on Know Your Shift and the question we like to ask all I guess straight up and it's probably the biggest question is what is the hardest change that's happened to you in your life? So I've, I've thought about this question quite a few times actually
1: and, and I could give a few examples. I think many people who know me well probably know that I'm kind of from Africa, Somalia specifically. And I wasn't born in this country. So for me, you know, the biggest change I've ever had in my personal life has been kind of climatizing to to European culture when I first came here and and how radically different that's been. And it's quite an unusual situation because uh, when I came here, I I was basically a refugee. And uh, at the moment, that's kind of a hot topic, as you know, Um, we've got um, kind of the boat situation that the current government seems to want to tackle. And we've also got quite an influx of uh, kind of mass refugees from uh, Ukraine as well. So um, this past year has been, you know, a reflection of, for me, that journey that I personally went on and and being able to kind of empathize with, with people that are coming here now, um, having made sort of a similar journey um, about 30 years ago, uh, when I first came uh, around 1995, uh, and the change that, that, you know, moving from essentially um, refugee camps in, in Ethiopia and Kenya to kind of a council estate in North London, <laughs> it, it's, it's definitely, you know, a big shift. And when you're nine years old, eight years, nine years old, um, and, uh, you, you know, you're leaving behind everything you've ever known, that does kind of have a a traumatic and you know it it, it certainly shifts everything you've ever known and you know you have to kind of develop a new mindset you're learning a new language a new culture you know you're seeing infrastructure you've never seen before so I think this past year I've definitely reflected on that journey I've probably forgotten about that journey throughout my career and my life and um, and that's been kind of one of the biggest changes in my life. And I think the second biggest change, if I can kind of bring it back to my personal career, is kind of uh, giving up a career or aspirations in science. And that's where, you know, my training was. That's what I love to do at university and in college. And uh, I was unfortunate enough to graduate in the last financial crisis uh, back in two thousand. Eight, uh, and uh, there was no demand for graduate geologists, basically, <laughs> during that time when uh, all exploration and, um, uh, 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 you know, the whole industry, earth science industry came to a halt. Uh, coming to a realisation that, you know, after so many applications, hundreds of job applications, you know, every continent on the planet that, you know, that this might not work out and that you have to pivot to something new. Um, that was, yeah, that was painful. Uh, I had to go through it, um, and uh, you know, I've I've accidentally landed on my feet here in kind of PBSA studio accommodation, which has been great to me over the last ten years, eleven years that I've been in the industry. But I think coming to that realization and making that transition for me was definitely the biggest career change, that 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 I definitely uh, had to come
0: across. Do you think? Obviously, uh, I mean, I don't know what age you obviously went through that first change coming over to, to the UK. But do you think that that sort of, and then you ended up making another big change, you know, having studied geology at Imperial College and then ending up working in student accommodation. Do you think that sort of, do you think that affected you in a positive way, you know, having made that change at, I assume, what was what was a fairly young age in how you, how you deal with change later on in your life and your career?
1: Yeah, I think, look, when you're a a kid in, in Africa, in one of these camps, you know, you're not necessarily going to school every day, depending on which of these camps you end up with. You know, there might be no education. So for the first nine years of my life, I've probably had two years of solid education, and the rest of it was just being in a transient state of essentially one city to another, one country to another. And, and you, you essentially learn to become a street kid. <laughs> so it's a different kind of education. You know, you get to learn how to be on the streets, how to navigate the environment that you're in. It, it You certainly become a lot more kind of resourceful, I would say. You, you learn to handle people as well because dealing with all manner of people your peers you know teenagers you know adults while if you are just in education you're just probably dealing with teachers and your peers right on a day-to-day basis so uh, you, you certainly kind of have to have a lot of street smarts about you so i think that 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 was that is definitely a positive for me It de- certainly helped me in my adult life those skills and you learn to be very resilient i would say as well like there's a lot of adversity and one of the kind of things that I've always drawn upon is just, you know, just unbreakable will. Like, you know, whatever the challenge is, whatever the situation is, you know, don't let it get you down. There's always a way forward. There's always a pass forward. So that level of resiliency is, is you get to, you know, really hone those skills, I guess, um, in, in that kind of environment.
0: Um, you know, I was going to say, in, I mean, compared to that change, this might seem like a small one, but you also n- moved from London to Manchester, which you know some people that that live in the UK that that would be a huge change for them. You know, what's what sort of brought on that that wanting to move move north?
1: Yeah, to move north, it, it was kind of career driven. I think almost certainly, just from what I recall, because I made that transition around 2017. So I, I was working uh, for kind of IQ student accommodation in London around 2016-17. And, and I was managing a fully nominated site in East London, Hackney. And uh, and, and and previously to that, you know, I was at Graystar uh, and there was a transition from Graystar to IQ, and I was managing one of the South London like premium high-end DL direct let sites there. So essentially I got a little bit bored with the nomination. It was kind of every day was the same and I knew that my skills were a little bit sharper than just managing um, a fully nominated site, uh, essentially being kind of just on the facility side really. And, you know, one of the things I always recommend to people is, you know, read industry publications, you know, read all the reports that the agencies put out every single year and uh, at that time I think Manchester had more cranes than any other city in Europe as one fact that I was reading and you know and all these new built to rent and student paths you see in the city centre now that have literally just exploded over the last five years all of those were coming into uh, commission so so I needed to do something to kind of stimulate my career a little bit and that's when Kind of Michelle Singleton from from the regional manager from IQ kind of uh, approached me because she was aware, you know, I was open to moving um, localities. And uh, I was given the opportunity to uh, kind of manage a small portfolio of about 500 bears in the city center. They couldn't just, they couldn't find anybody to take up that position. So it was a kind of a natural internal move within IQ for me. Um, And it was a good move because I think that, you know, helped me get to the next level. In you know the skills and kind of attributes that I needed to be able to become a regional manager in the future as well.
0: So, having gone through many different changes, both personal and career, do you like change?
1: I, I'm, I, I yeah, I, would say, I'm, I I'm addicted to change. I think <laughs> <laughs> I'm addicted to different. Like I think stimulation. Yeah, I've only got one goal in life that I actually work towards, I would say, every year. And and that goal is I need to visit every single country in the world. So I've done about 27 at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've got another 100 and I think 23 left. So, you know, that's the only goal I actually I'm working towards consistently. Everything else for me is like a bonus, I would say. So, you know, I wake up every day and I go, how lucky I am, because, you know, just going back to my personal background, you know, everything's stacked against you. You know, you come in here to this country, don't know the language. It's already hard kind of growing up in a council estate. You know, you go to not, not this average school and you accidentally get into Imperial College. Uh, you know, that's a funny story, too, actually, if we have time to get through. <laughs> so uh, how did I get into Imperial College? So, I didn't know what uni I wanted to go to, to be honest with you. All I needed to do, well, I only had one goal for university, which was it needed to be pretty, like a high-end university, top five, right? So I, I had no idea Imperial was top five or top anything, right? So one day, one of my mates called Amit, Amit Morty, he's, he's a great guy, which he taught me a lot, actually, about life and how to succeed. So Amit goes, I asked Amit where he's going because Amit's very successful. He's like, oh, I'm going to Imperial College. And, he, and I was like, what grades do you need? And it was like AAA or some ridiculous career. Uh, but this was back in 2004, by the way. Sounds like I looked at my grades and I went, I'm a B student. <laughs> like, I need to get there. Like, how? So the next year, literally, just from one conversation, I had a goal, an accidental goal. <laughs> like, I need three years to get into Imperial, right? And then the next thing was, I was like, I didn't care what course I did as long as it was a science course. Right? Because I love science. I said, okay, what's the one course I have a realistic chance of getting at? So you have to like really focus here. So it's like chemistry. I was looking at the rejection ratios, like, no way. Physics, even harder. Biology, I could get into biology, but I was like, I don't like writing essays. In biology, you have to write a lot of essays. So I was like, I need something where I write less essays have some mats in it and be able to figure things out so geology the department the earth science department was like a natural fit for me i love to travel as well and all the travel was fully subsidized there so basically you know you're paying tuition fees of like a thousand pounds a year uh, but the course cost uni probably like 15 grand per person to run <laughs> it was I mental
0: know. I love the fact that obviously one thing that I know about you is you love your data and we're going to come on to that later is you were looking at rejection ratios even back then for <laughs> uh, <laughs> for course.
1: Yeah. I mean, the one thing in life you have to do, right, is, I'm a big believer in focus and stack the probability in your favor. I wouldn't say I was a super successful person, but all the successes I have is just stacking in your favor. Um And I was, I was absolutely ruthless, even from a young age through like four years of French, right? And I went, GCSE French, I'm sorry, I'm not taking the exam. Like I can't waste my time revising to get a G or like a U or whatever the grade was gonna be. (laughs) So I popped up one day and went, look, I won't say her name. I can't, I can't do this exam. It's a waste of time because if I do this exam, I can't revise for maths, English, science the things that I thought mattered every subject matters, but the things I thought mattered more to be able to get to that next level, dropped art. I think one of the other compulsory ones was uh, geography, I think it was. So, yeah, just really focus on the narrow pool, stack it, stack the grades in your favor, get to the next objective. So it's not like gamifying education, basically.
0: <laughs> I like it. I think there's uh, there's definitely some advice out there, although not doing exams, I'm not uh... <laughs> Uh, not, not sure we'll we'll be giving that advice, but but I like it. I guess um, we we have a shared history, love, passion for purpose-built student accommodation, and um, and sort of combining that with, with with change as as we always discuss on here. So, what do you see are the biggest changes happening in student accommodation sector right now?
1: I think right now is it's an interesting time because. Last year, you know, the I think the volume of students in the system caught a few people off guard. Um, so there's a massive influx of international students, um, and so we're seeing like our ratios of domestic to international students just be more in favour of that um, international student pipe, like that uh, bookings basically that the pipeline of. The waiting list that we had for international students last year was just off the charts. So I think the biggest change happening is that the kind of high end purpose bill provision has been very successful last year and it continues to be very successful this year. The the, the bookings that we have for our most premium assets far outstrip what we call essentially the middle end and, and more of the budget options. Um and that, that's having an impact on the demographics of the properties, the service provisions, the expectations of, of the client as well. And, and it's having a massive impact on the rents as well, because you know, the student loan um provision is only going up, I think two percent this year. Um, I'm not sure about next year. Um, so you know, UK students are you know having to supplement the uh The income with with extra income, the rent that they need to pay. What we're finding out is, you know, local students are being priced priced out of high quality, you know, good accommodation, and having to resort to, you know, more I would say precarious accommodation situations and more uh, lower end um, and maybe not as great of a landlord type accommodations, which I think is is not a good trend. So I think the industry needs to address affordability um, together with councils and universities because there's just not enough um, affordable accommodation being built at the moment and there's a real need
0: for that. You say that you obviously that needs to be joined up approach between councils and universities and and providers so as a provider what is your role in that Yeah, because yeah, we all know costs have gone up to, to run yeah. accommodation, you know, and you want to provide the best quality service that you can. And also, you know, buildings are reliant on investment, which, which needs to achieve a certain rate of return, else we can't attract that investment into the sector to, to raise the bar. So from maybe just both from an investor, investor and a provider standpoint, what do you think your role is in in that affordability problem in the sector?
1: I think our, our role has been so far, where we have land or we're thinking of developing, just working with governments to just kind of educate them on the problems and the needs that they have, to to help students out this year, you know, we've we've made payment terms more flexible. Uh, we've introduced kind of monthly payment plans uh, where uh, there's been a need. And also we have uh, a provision for vulnerable students as well. So people who are care leavers, um, who are kind of in uh, more precarious situations, we've got discounted rents for those in some of our properties as well. Um, But I I think the way to solve this is kind of educating governments, educating local councils, because it's a supply and demand problem, right? The the supply needs to increase. that's that's how that's how you solve this problem because cities with a lot of supply um, have you know stable rental growth like Liverpool, uh, Sheffield, Coventry, Leicester. Um, I can point to those examples as where students are getting a, a good deal because there's there's enough supply, but where there is just no supply where the councils have been very unfavorable to PBSA in the past and continue to be, where investment's been very hard, um, or there's a high barrier to entry, that's where we're seeing uh, the problem areas. And also, we've seen you know governments introduce caps as well. We're, we're, you know, we're trying to educate the caps don't work, and you know the solution is more supply here um, uh, rather than just uh, limiting what can be possible because that also essentially doesn't bring more supply into the pipeline.
0: I guess so. Going back to what we were saying earlier about. When you're moving to Manchester, you know Manktopia and all those different terms that we used of of all the investment that's certainly going into into build to rent, and we even see it going into single family housing now. Uh, you now, why are investors, in your opinion, pivoting towards build to rent when PBSA clearly has great rental growth, a huge demand that doesn't seem to be going anywhere? Yet we see, you know, the pipeline is not anywhere near what we needed to be.
1: So, so built to rent is an interesting one because you know I saw the latest rent in Manchester and uh, this is a city I know well and and you know the the growth rates you know are somewhere in the 20% in the kind of the built-rent sphere as well. And the reason for that is there's students living in them. <laughs> right? There's there's students living so it's so it's you know the built-to-rent product in some of these cities kind of in some part become de facto student as well. <laughs> um, so the attraction for built-to-rent that I see is you know it's a more flexible product, right? Yeah, you, know, you have different levels of people that can go in. they young professionals, students, you name it, right? Um, and they're clustered in kind of up-and-coming cities where. There's been a lot of investment. There's lots of uh, tech jobs or other jobs that are kind of attracting millennials and Gen Z. And it's really hard for young people to get a deposit to own their own homes as well. Right. So, what you have is kind of a transient workforce, workforce that actually naturally wants to be flexible. Right. Um, and so, this built a rent product where there's low deposit, sometimes no deposit, pets are welcomed essentially it's kind of like a playground almost you know highly immunitized where you can meet your friends have a good time and also the best schemes that i've been in have an element of co-working space as well right so if you're a freelancer or um you know have the ability to work from home two three four times a week with very high speed wi-fi precariously low student accommodation some of these have become de facto uh, student pads as well
0: one thing that um definitely caught the uh imagination of the industry and one of the reasons i wanted to you on was your unofficial launch tracker <laughs> that you uh you were publicizing back in the autumn on uh, on linkedin i think you had uh you had everyone hooked on uh on your daily updates, and um, even some providers, you know, were uh, demanding to be on the list <laughs> after, you'd, after you'd not put them on there. So, uh, what made you? Uh, what made you want to come up with that?
1: Um, so, the unofficial uh, launch tracker was uh, an impromptu idea that I had. Kind of pitched it to a few people. The Data is very poor in the industry, I would say. Um, There's a couple of really good providers of data that you could go to, student crowd, students, um, some of the agencies as well, but live data and actually what's going on in the ground, you know, leather on the ground, boots on the ground, you know, and live day-to-day data is is very rare unless you pay huge sums of money. So, So it kind of snowballed from just, you know, trying to educate the industry. Mainly our focus was trying to educate asset managers and, kind of um investors on what's going on as well and and kind of to put our brand out there because you know we have some of the best data in the industry even though we're a small outfit we, we have some of the best research in the industry that I feel and you know we've got insights that you know we don't share necessarily to public but you might have seen you know 25 percent of what we have um kind of posted on 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 my LinkedIn page um and we just wanted to kind of Put, put the brand out there as, as, you know, as a leading kind of research and data gathering, as well as a property management firm um, as well. We've got ambitions to eventually do a little bit of third party as well. Um, so at the moment uh, about, you know, 5% of our portfolio is third party, but we, we want to grow that, but we, we don't want to grow that in a, in a, you know, unsustainable way. Um, we're a bit of a high end niche provider. Um, So we want to make deals and get deals which make sense as well. So we have had some interest uh, coming off the back of that campaign. So it it was mainly kind of an education um, campaign, I would say, more than anything
0: else. Yes, my thoughts about it were every provider is running their competitor analysis that they update every week, probably on an Excel spreadsheet. makes me think that will the industry ever get to that point Like a hotel model, where they're monitoring rates, you know, across cities, across markets, from one, you know, centralised platform. Maybe there's a gap there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think internally there's probably a gap. I mean, this is not hard, right? You know, to to get a data scraper on on a website is not hard. It's not, you know, people probably probably don't have the imagination on how they want to do it, right? But but to scrape websites is easy. You know, people. Who are in the amazon sort of fba space retail they do it every day right what products how are they changing volumes that type of thing so uh, a little bit of investment we can do it quite easily um so um i don't i don't think for most providers it makes sense to track this on a daily weekly basis to be honest with you you know most markets um tiny markets there's not much change honestly um so some other markets where it's really hot. There, there are daily changes. You know, so one of the most exciting things um, about you know this is, you know, just to see, just to kind of break down people's strategies and see what their outlook is. You can actually gather um, a lot of information from this. And uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, if you don't want to do the work, there are consultancies out there as well that will just give you the data as and when.
0: Last, um, last question on rent is um, I've been talking to a number of providers over the last few months and it feels like going off the back of what you said that there was an unbelievable level of demand last academic year you know probably from the effects of of the pandemic uh, and that doesn't see any you know slowing down this year that's for certain in fact it looks like it's increasing what's your thoughts around dynamic renting because dynamic renting used to be seen as you know something that some of the larger providers did because they could look at look at rents like we were just saying on a more regular basis and and, you know and, and push those rents as as the rooms filled up whereas you know talking to a number of providers this year they've they want to capitalize on the demand early on therefore they've been Going out with their headline rate early on, and that's it, you know. And I see a few providers, or certainly individual asset managers, um, promoting on LinkedIn that they're they're already fully booked for September. And it makes me think, what's what's your thoughts about the overall approach this year on dynamic <laughs> renting?
1: So um, people are savvier than they were two years ago. I'll, I'll tell you that, right? Because um, the data we see coming through. Is that there is more dynamic pricing in the sector than than ever before? Um, I think um, a few people have been, as, as I was saying, similar to last year, not learned their lesson and were caught off guard in some markets and sold out in like 24 hours. <laughs> um, so, so you really have to, I think, have a a strategy behind uh, and good data behind how you want to allocate um, and execute. Um, your dy- dynamic rental strategy, because if there's no strategy behind it, it just becomes um, um, poorly executed, a bit of a free-for-all. And also, you're not you're not essentially gauging what's the marketing cycle as well. So um, I think that's, that's my opinion. Um, it's probably not good for consumers, I would say. Um, but uh, we're seeing signs that consumers are becoming savvier um, because – Every data point that I have at the moment on all the markets that we track suggests that, you know, most markets are up about 50% in terms of booking times higher than they were a year ago. Right. Um, so students being a lot savvier are booking a lot earlier. Also, international agencies, you know, the likes of student.com, you have they're educating students and, and trying to get them to book a lot earlier as well, um, which is driving up massive international student volumes, you know, Q, Q4 uh, of the cycle of and Q1 right now as well. What this means is for the consumer is that clearing is going to be a challenge. Um, it's going to be a big challenge this year. Um, and if if universities haven't planned for this and signed nomination agreements or agreements with the private sector to make sure rooms are blocked, and inventory is available, then, you know, we're going to see more headlines this, this coming summer of, you know, student housing being another crisis, which, which is which is, was predictable um, again. So my message is actually more to the universities, which is, you know, start negotiations with providers earlier, you know, start talking to us a lot earlier about what you need, what your expectations are, and how we can fulfill them. A couple of universities that I personally deal with have done that very well this year, um, and they've got good hedged positions for clearing. But we can see signs that others have not, and it's going to be an issue again.
0: The problem that we've never seemed to have solved of the relationship between uh, PBSA and universities some <laughs> cities like to say, some universities are fantastic at it, and others, and others, uh, others have got some work yeah. to do. Uh,
1: There's a good correlation between the university's health. Financial health and how proactive they are—that's actually the one data point that's the most important. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and this is publicly, you know, available. You just go to HESA and you know get their, all their financials. And, you know, see their willingness to do a deal.
0: That's one thing that universities are talking about a lot: is um, student experience. And we see providers, you know, focusing on high-quality accommodation and trying to link in with that. I guess we used to. Think of great student experience, and maybe we still do, as you know, events and building a community. But if the students are getting savvier, what are they looking for apart from the physical facilities that you provide? Whether that's you know the amenities or great rooms, you know, how are a provider going to stand out in what is now really quite a crowded market?
1: So it's t- that's a that's a tough question. I'll be honest. Um, you know, all the data we're seeing is. The opposite of that. They're not looking for, they're looking for, they're looking for a home next year. There's a mad rush for a home. <laughs> that's what we're seeing. Now, I'm a bit biased maybe because we're not in really tough markets where we do need to stand out. We're in some really good markets where we've done investment, and we're in some moderate markets where we will be full, we will have to compete, but you know, we'll get there in the end. So that's where my sort of my my perspective comes from. So yeah, the data points we're seeing is, yeah, they need a home and then everything else is like an added extra at the moment, right? While two years ago during the pandemic, yeah, you did did need to stand out and you did need to provide a a great experience. And still the most important data point for our customers seems to be the location. You just can't be a great location um, next to campus or has great transport links to the campus, right? Um, and then the second data point actually is the actual physical environment, right? So we have a lot of Asian students, you know, you're not getting that booking unless you send them the floor plan, you tell them about the room size, tell them about what direction it's facing. You know, they're not talking about what experience they're having, you know, it's like the product, I'm, is my home going to be comfortable, nice, great? Uh, am I going to see sunlight? You know, am I, that's, that's what we tend to see, uh. So they're kind of international students who are very product focused. Um, and when they get here, so the, once you capture them as a booking, you know, they check in. That's where I think the experience comes in. So you need to drive high rebooking rates. Um, and, and the way to do that, honestly, the number one thing is get your team right. You know, if you have a solid team, the manager knows everybody in the building. They're easily accessible. You know, you've got a great security provider who also does a similar thing. That is the ultimate experience, in my opinion, having a great team that make you feel like you're at home, that connect you to your peers, that create the community. The marketing team is like the cherry on top. You know, we we were, you know, one of the few providers in, you know, 2017, 18, who still had the classic RA model. So, a lot of providers between like 2014 and 16 got rid of the RAs and the senior residents and the experience. That's now coming back. So, people are resourcing those up again, but we've always stuck to that strategy. So, that's the cherry on top where we've got people who live in the property doing the events, making sure that people are connected, making sure the marketing teams experience strategies executed. But, you know, I think it's important for us to realise that's the cherry on top. Everything else is the reason why people rebook.
0: So moving on perhaps towards when you're talking about your team, one thing we're talking to people about a lot at the moment is around the returning to the office, having an office, managing remote portfolios, and see a lot of organisations uh, struggling to find a way where they can maintain both allowing home working, remote working, but also, you know, getting the collaboration and, and communication right. And, and, and also, you know, trying to define what's fair and what's hap- what people are happy with. How have you approached that with having uh, having a portfolio of sites all across the country? How do you coordinate both those people that are on site and those remote workers and make it work for everyone?
1: Again, um, slight bias here, because we've always been a remote company uh, from the onset. So um, we were were an international operation. So our head of marketing lives in Ireland, Uh, you know. I'm the head of operations. I live in Manchester where we don't have a property. (laughs) You know, a lot of our central services team live in London and close to our head office um, near Bond Street. So, yeah, we've always been remote, uh, I would say. So we've always utilised technologies and, you know, efficiencies that have catered to our way of working. So for us, you know, when the pandemic came, it was kind of a, a natural, you know, transition I guess there were some difficulties so you know I I I already knew how to use Zoom and you know a couple of other remote tech but some people needed to kind of get training on that and, and be a little bit more proficient what we've seen is the hardest thing to manage uh, is the quality quality on the ground quality of the service delivery when you're not on the ground as much. Um, so right now we are back on the ground again. You I'm know, visiting sites on a monthly basis, our head of marketing is out and about as well. So we, we do a fair bit of traveling, um, but managing that quality of output of services is, what is what's was the most challenging. So we did see some sites deteriorate, not, you know, maybe that's the wrong word, but the quality did drop, you know, the cleaning and standards did drop, and you know they they needed a little bit more support than other sites so maintaining a consistent brand standard was probably the most challenging part and the only way we were able to solve that is just by you know just being present and providing leadership on the ground so um, i think um, my advice to be to any kind of people with, with you have to get people into the mentality that the job does involve traveling That you know you have to be flexible and you know, it all starts with the hiring process, I think. With people maybe who are already struggling with that, I think you just have to work with them and just sell the vision of what you're trying to achieve um, as a brand and, and how their contribution um, is highly valued um, and, and, and to set those expectations.
0: So how would you describe the culture at Aparto?
1: Um, the, the culture of pato is, I think, entrepreneurial, <laughs> right? We are, we, we are, we, we are just mad about PBSA and providing a great service, I think. <laughs> right. Um, and we, we are not afraid. We're not afraid to take risks, to try new things, right? To opt we're continuously optimizing, you know, every element, um, of the the operation. Our systems, literally, you know, I'm close to the systems manager and the systems team. You know, we've done some things um, that other providers much larger than us by just being a bit crazy, would never even attempt or or do. Um, We've used technology in in ways that, you know, are, I think, industry leading, um, just looking at what our competitors are doing. And you can only do that and just willing to try things. And, and that's where I think the Heinz culture of just being I think exceptional and and trusting their employees to to get things done is is why I love working here um because we we are free to to tinker we are free to try things and there's nobody really saying don't do that it's not company policy don't you know don't <laughs> don't do that you know it, it's taking up resource that could be used elsewhere and that's where we find we find our most successive
0: endeavors is when when we're free to experiment so it leads me nicely on to as we're talking about change and um experimenting so given that trying to experiment and and free to do that is great what are you you know what are you looking to change about about your operation you know in in the near future that you can perceive, and how have you gone about you know trying to give people listening to this? You know sort of tips and advice on you know we're going to attempt this bold change, and you know you're already a fair way there because you're not afraid to do that, and your culture allows you to do that. but how are you gonna you know what what's a big change that you're thinking about that's coming up and and what's been your approach to to planning and executing that?
1: so I think the biggest change coming our way as I've already alluded to it is like we we're, we're 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 in a position where we could take on more third party mandates now. Right. So we've always managed Heinz portfolio, um, whether it's kind of in Europe or in the UK or the island. Um, And the platform is always being optimized, but it's at a place where the stability um, and the scale um, is able to attract new opportunities um, in the third party space. So working with Avalon. So I started this program off last year where we won our first mandate, um, which is a 140 bed studio scheme in Oxford, which I'm actually in right now uh, for this podcast. Um, And, uh, yeah, so, you know, we we want this uh, mandate by just, you know, pitching a slightly different vision to people than our competitors um, are pitching. And and we found our niche and we think we found our, our space to be competitive in this in this space as well. Um and, and so that is my biggest challenge over the next 12 months is scaling the platform. Um and we have a huge strength and depth in a, the ability to do this because about you know 18 months ago, um Heinz uh, um acquired a, 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 a very successful property management company called Helix Property Partners. Uh, um now now known as um Helix uh, by Heinz, and they manage over two hundred um, commercial properties in the country. So, some of the biggest office complexes in, in London, um, as well as shopping centres in the regions and industrial, uh, and some retail as well. So, by by integrating the Apartheid Student brand into this machine of property management, where you know eighty percent of their work is already third party and twenty percent is Heinz. We can provide investors with, you know, tremendous efficiency of scale um, and also expertise. So my job over the next 12 months is just to kind of scale this in, in a meaningful way. And then we'll see what the next, I'm quite excited about the next 12 months, actually.
0: How do you prepare the wider team? You know, how do you take them on that vision? Because that's half the battle, I imagine, is to is, is to see, you know, get them to yeah. go into that vision when perhaps it's, they're quite busy already.
1: They're quite busy already, but we like to hire ambitious people. Um, so we've we've already got the next load of regional managers, right in our team, right. We've got, we've got that, and um, our assistant managers are you know have strength in depth that is unbelievable. So you know we lost a lot of experienced, talented people in the you know in twenty twenty two. You know. And almost all of them were replaced by our assistant managers, right? So for us, the most you know, one of the most important positions in the company is your assistant managers. You know, they should be of a you know quality level that they should be ready to step up almost immediately, um, because we do hire some of the most talented general managers, and we, we we like to you know onboard them, and if they're also you know transitioning and being promoted. You know, we like to support them with a the development campaign behind that as well. So, you know, I've got pillars out there, you know, who are ready to be, you know, regional managers. And for us, you know, it's just pressing a button. If we do win a small portfolio in a specific region, you know, I know we can scale that with the people that we have already, and, and they're ready and they're you know they're actually pushing me to for growth as well. So they you know they want these opportunities within the company.
0: What what would you say your values are, and how do you apply them in? in your role um the only i don't really have values that, that you know i can name
1: if i'm being honest with you <laughs> you know uh the only one that i you know that's quite constant in my life is just authenticity really that's that you know being authentic and honest is is the only value that i would say has been kind of consistent in, in throughout my entire life but as, as i as i get older as i you know as i change i guess you know i have an adaptive personality so what i value at any particular moment what my values are at a particular moment are, are different you know at one point in my life i probably valued stability <laughs> um, and and you know and now you know it might be different so i think all, being authentic being honest just being yourself people are just you know not i don't like fake people so um, and I can pick them up quite quickly. So <laughs> I think that's that's the only value that has always been consistent
0: throughout my life. We all know that PBSA is it's a twenty four hour business, you know. And other than planning your next twenty seven countries to visit, how how do you switch off from you know? There's always something happening on site. We know when you know you leave a site early evening sometimes and there's you know that's when the sites come alive uh and that's when <laughs> most of the activity happens you know uh, how do you what do you, you know what advice could you give to people out there in the industry that you know are, are constantly uh thinking about work or worrying about what's going on in their site when they're not when they're not there yeah
1: so I think it all that boils down to your level of comfort away from the site is dictated by how proficient your people and processes are. And the first element of that is people. If it's an outsourced provision, like your security company, you know, it has to be awesome. You know, we work with a, a shout-out, Tech Security in the southeast of London. And Umer, who's a former police officer, right? <laughs> He's my security man. And I know Uma, like, has that operational lockdown. Like, the people that he hires are valued. We've had the same team for a number of years. You know, those people are happy with the work they do. Their remuneration is very important and and, and, and are well paid. Um, and so, you know, we've had people who are ex-army, et cetera, et cetera, who are just really good at their job in, in, in being a security provision and also provide a great customer service as well. So they know our students better than we do. Um, but yeah, it, it all boils down to who you have as your account manager, what the people they hire are and what they do, and if they can keep them as well. You don't want like different people every every other week. Uh, that's always a challenge. I've been through that. Uh, luckily, not recently. Um, so people, get the people right, and then the processes as well. So, you know, if, if you can get these processes right, you know, most of the problems are actually solved on the ground, and you're just getting calls about some of the serious stuff where you've told them to call you. So if you're getting calls only on the subject matters where you're expecting a call, I think that that's how you can kind of rest easy at night. Um, and then, you know, you have to switch off uh, at some point. So You know, I I tend to have two phones, of course, um, and one of them on do not disturb when I don't need to be disturbed Um, because I know if I'm not going to be disturbed during that time, you know, there's cover for me, right? The system and the escalation process is robust enough to handle me missing a call now and again.
0: One other thing that um, I wanted to talk to you about was um, we see a lot of demand from investors at the moment around ESG looking for providers, um, whether in-sourced or, or third party managers, to demonstrate strategies and plans for, for ESG. And also starting to see customers be more interested in sustainable providers and sustainable business. What's, what are the biggest initiatives are you seeing in the industry in regards to ESG? And are you seeing... I know we touched upon customers at the moment. There's huge demand just actually securing somewhere, but is that becoming part of their agenda for looking for somewhere? You know, looking at Aparto or another provider's sustainability <coughs> credentials.
1: So, let's the investment side. I think that's where the demand for um, ESG initiatives is coming from. This 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 has been cutting over hot topic because of everybody's energy prices just going absolutely ballistic. So some of the things that we're seeing is um, looking at retrofitting built properties with various energy saving initiatives, essentially. Um, this particular one in Oxford that we've built is probably you know, one of the best ones that I've seen where you know, it's a new build property, you know the owner saw the energy crisis coming, and a lot of infrastructure has been put into this place to make sure you know it's uh, as environmentally friendly as possible. There's tons of solar on the roof. Um, you know, every studio has its own energy meter as well. <laughs> so you know, if the charging model changes in the future, and you know, customers have to pay for utilities, you know, there's a meter there as well, so it, it can be fairly recharged. Um, some of our competitors I know are looking at retrofitting you know these meters into their kind of clusters and studios as well whether the charging model will change we don't know but people are definitely starting to think about it and, and on the social side um, I think that's where apart has been probably the strongest and it's really been led by our head of marketing Tara O'Brien so you might have seen recently some of the initiatives such as raising money for you know the, the earthquake appeal in Turkey and Syria the fashion shows that we've done where students have kind of donated um clothing and we've sold those on uh a sustainable fashion to raise money for the charity um just to generally focusing on the well-being um so we partner up with who's who are a kind of a digital mental health support company so all of our students have access to kind of 24 uh, 7 mental health support via that digital platform so they can actually talk to trained counselors online um, and, you know, it's all private, we don't have any of the data, you know, it's one-to-one counselling. So that that t- t- those types of initiatives um, have been good. And, and as, a, as I was saying earlier, we've done deals where we're housing, you know, the most vulnerable students as well, um, the care leavers um, and anybody in sort of precarious housing situations. Um, you know, th- we've partnered up with uh, One University on, on that initiative as well
0: lastly we always uh we always do some quick fire questions so I'll start off with the first one if you could change one thing about the world what would it be
1: um I would say no discrimination I think that's that's probably at the top of my list um, um I've not personally suffered over discrimination um uh, but I do know when I was starting off in my career my funny name was definitely a disadvantage now it's turned into a advantage because it's kind of a unique name uh so people tend to remember it but um i think discrimination is is probably what i would remove as the first thing it seems to be the source of most problems to me
0: okay and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start
1: um i would say take risk don't be afraid to take risk um you know don't, don't be afraid to give up dreams for new dreams um and and just be just you know just be as resilient as you can be and and yeah take risks
0: okay and um, what's going to be your next big change
1: um I'm not sure because as I said uh change comes to me at random points it, I tend to you know make decisions um, consulting my wife now more often than I used to to be honest but on a whim so uh, I, I don't know what my next change would be but I'd be quite keen to work abroad sometime in the future. Um, don't know when, but I'd be keen keen to work abroad. Um, I'd love to work in Africa at some point as well. So um, I don't know what I'll do there, but in Africa is a continent quite close to my heart. And uh, yeah, I'd love to do something there in the future as well.
0: This question always puts people on the spot, but um, we like to ask the previous guests to recommend another guest um someone that could join us on on know your shift to talk about change um so have you got anybody in mind that you would like to recommend that i should go and ask to to join me on the podcast i
1: think one of my best friends eddie Kane. you need to uh, you know eddie so uh i think get 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 Eddie on the podcast. Uh, he's got some interesting stories uh, and an interesting perspective. Often one eighty to me. I think that's that's why I like him so much.
0: <laughs> Make a good team. I'll uh, I'll certainly include him in the notes and uh, and tag him in the uh, in the post to see whether he'll join us on the next one. Yeah. Um, Fatty, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I really wanted to get you involved because, having known you over a number of years um, and, and worked with you, I know that you're someone that thinks really differently about the industry. And, and you know, we've talked about it today in terms of how you're willing to take a risk. Um, I think that was certainly uh, shown in your um, your launch tracker that, uh, that I say had the whole industry hooked, and just being able to think about that and publicise that, I think. Um, it's testament to how you think about how we should change the industry so it's, it's been great to talk to you Dan thanks for joining us
1: brilliant thanks for having me and yeah let's get Eddie on I'll, I'll have a word with him as well
0: <laughs> thanks